Um, okay, I think we will, as soon as the last few people have taken the last few seats, um, I think we should get going. Um, so, first of all, welcome to all of you. It's great to see this um, lecture theatre entirely full um, for an evening event. Um, my name's John Hills. I'm Professor of Social Policy here at LSE, although I think I'm really involved with this event um, as uh, one of the founding co-directors of the International Inequalities Institute, um, under whose auspices we're, we're holding this, because the Institute was delighted to host Terry and Naomi um, as practitioner fellows um, last year, in fact a little, not just last year but a little bit of time before, um, leading to this excellent book um, which they're going to be talking about this evening. And I should immediately thank the Joseph Roundtree Foundation um, who made um, the program of practitioner fellows um, possible and therefore made um, this book and this evening possible. Um, now, while we're, some of us, distracted by other things at the moment, um, it's refreshing to be able to have um, a, an hour and a half where we can think about um, actual policy and, indeed, think about some policy successes as well as some um, reverses. Um, but first of all, let me start with some practicalities. Um, the first is that this evening is being recorded and filmed... So if you shouldn't be here and you don't want to be permanently on the website, um, maybe best not to ask a question at the end and keep out of the side of the camera, which is pointing this way, um, and we'll stay pointing this way. Um, if there's a fire alarm, it will be a real fire alarm. Um, please could you turn your mobiles, which won't look like this, but please turn your mobiles um, to silent. Um, but if you are using them and you wish to tweet, uh, the hashtag is hash LSE care, with capitals on the LSE and the C. We're going to wrap up by 7.55 at the latest this evening, um, so that um, people can, can, who have to leave get, can get on their way. But for the rest of us, um, you're all very welcome to join us at a reception afterwards. There are various reasons which mean that the reception can't be here. The reception will be downstairs at the Garrick Cafe, which is just a few yards uh, back up the Aldwych on the corner um, of Houghton Street, um, opposite Hellesy's main entrance, and we're down in the, um, the basement of that. So please join us afterwards, and then we can carry on the discussion in a more convivial way. Um, um, and, but also, as you leave, um, you'll see that if you haven't bought them already on the way in, there are copies of the book, um, which is extremely competitively priced, um, <laughs> for you to pick up um, on, on your way. Um, but then just some very quick introductions. We couldn't have a better panel um, to discuss um, family parenting policy um, here this evening. Um, Naomi Eisenstadt was the first director of the Sure Start program, which we were marking um, one of its anniversaries recently. Um, most recently, she, she was also director of the Social Exclusion Task Force, again with a whole series of things that are highly relevant to this. Um, and most recently, she's been with kind of slightly different names, um, poverty advisor to um, the Scottish government in most recent years. Um, Kerry Oppenheim um, was, when I first met you, at the Child Poverty Action Group, I think, um, later on in number 10 with Tony Blair, 
Um, I'm with the chief executive of the Early Intervention Foundation, so you begin to see a pattern here in terms of their interests. Um, um, and they're going to be talk. They're going to start by talking about the book's findings and conclusions. We're then going to have reactions from Ryan Shorthouse. Um, Ryan is chief executive of Bright Blue, and you can guess a little bit from its name roughly where in the political spectrum um, it is, but also maybe a little bit where it is in the intellectual spectrum as well, um, which is which is helpful. Um, Previously, Ryan was um, at the Social Market Foundation and at an earlier stage before that, I think, was with David Willits um, when he was Shadow Education um, spokesman. Um, Matthew Taylor, um, the end, um, is currently, has been for a little while now, um, Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Arts and Manufacturers. Manufacturers. Anyway, the RSA. Um, but still seems to invent new initiatives um, uh, extremely frequently. Um, but before that, um, he had stints um, within as chief advisor um, to, um, to Tony Blair within number 10 at one point when some of these policies were running, um, and before that at the Institute for Public Policy Research. Um, once they've... Um, Given their presentation and initial reactions, there will be plenty of time, I hope, for question and, uh, questions from you and answers from the whole of our panel. But first, I think, Kerry, you are starting off. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much uh, for coming today. And um, I have to say, it's far more daunting to speak to an audience which is a combination of strangers and then people you know extremely well, including your own mum. And, uh, <laughs> and so, um, uh, but really, it's lovely to, lovely to see you all. Thank you um, to John, um, Aaron, Lisa, and uh, the International Institute for Inequalities, or of in- Inequalities, I should say, um, uh, for hosting us. Um, uh, it's been a real pleasure to, to, to be there. And also just to say right at the outset, uh, let's just get the slide up, right at the outset, um, I just wanted to say that our book really draws on the material that many others uh, have been working on uh, for a long time. So in particular, the LSE and uh, the Centre for the Analysis of, uh, of Social Exclusion, the IFS, uh, the Early Intervention Foundation, uh, the Nuffield, Nuffield Foundation as well, and the insights of many others who work in the field. So our thanks to all of you. So when Naomi asked me um, to write this book with her, a key motivation for both of us was the decision in 2015 to abandon the statutory targets to eradicate child poverty in a generation. Uh, It was a bold, ambitious pledge, which, um, uh, when it was turned into legislation, had cross-party support, although there were differences of view about how to reach that target. And I think... Our feeling was and is that the government was then no longer accountable for children's livelihoods. It was also um, a personal journey um, uh, because both Naomi and I uh, were involved in various aspects of family policy, uh, whether it was developing or trying to carry out that policy. So it's been an opportunity to stand back and reflect. So I'm going to start off and I'm going to look at at the context in which family policy was formed and some of the evidence about what makes a difference. And Naomi's going to talk about the policies and politics 
uh, and uh, a bit about where next. So, um, interestingly, the slides have suddenly turned red, so <laughs> that wasn't um, intentional. Uh, so, in the book, we focused on the last two decades and we analysed the attempts of successive governments to improve children's lives and their outcomes through the lens of poverty. And public policy essentially does that in two ways reducing pressures on families and increasing their capabilities. And thanks to um, Axel Heitmuller, who, who sort of invented this framework, and we, it's something that we use throughout the book. So when we talk about reducing pressures, we're talking about things like uh, increasing financial support, uh, we're talking about support into employment, uh, benefits, tax credits, as well as rights to things like maternity and paternity leave. And when we're talking about increasing capabilities, it might be when a health visitor comes to visit you after you've just had a baby, uh, a parenting programme, or in the case of when we're talking about families who are at major risk, uh, trouble, the Troubled Families programme that many of you will be familiar with. And then a third role is intervening uh, to safeguard children. And what you see over this period is really quite a substantial change in the role of the state, from being largely confined to protecting children when they are at risk of harm, to, um, to a, a gro growing support for families and children, and, and particular, in particular a role in relation to parenting. Although in practice, of course, very often focused on mothers. Charts like this will be uh, familiar to you, and I'm only going to touch on it briefly, but the sort of the landscape and the context for family policy um, has been changing over those two decades. So here is uh, GDP per head, and what we see is that new labour was able to build on a growing economy in the latter days of the major government, then you have the run into the financial crash and a slow climb out, and of course now um, big risks in the current context as anybody who looked at the IFS uh, predictions that came out earlier this week. And we also see major changes in public spending over the period, reflecting both changing economic stand, uh, 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 circumstances as well as political choices. So that's, of course, a critical backdrop to the scope and the kinds of family support that different political administrations to, uh, undertook. Um, so the other aspect of changing landscapes is what's been happening to families, which is part of you know, a long-term trend. So we see a greater diversity of families, increases in divorce, separation, cohabitation, and that reflects changes in attitudes, greater gender, uh, greater gender equality, and changes in the law. And we see uh, the decline of married couples with children, as a proportion of all families over this period, and a really quite sharp rise in cohabiting fa uh, families, and a stabilising of the number of lone parent families. We also see a growing number uh, of gay and lesbian families with children, but still small as a proportion of all families. Importantly, and it's not captured by this table, families are dynamic. They're coming in and out of different family types, and repartnering, and we see also the growth of what's sometimes called blended families, where you combine children from a past relationship in a new relationship. And I think the two things to hold on here to here is first that the risk of poverty for different 
groups of families is higher. So in particular for lone parent families and also for cohabiting parents. And second, that parents, children and extended families are negotiating more complex families. And that has implications for how you organise work and care, but also for the emotional well-being of those people in those families. And family policy has been changing, and it has reflected uh, uh, many of those changes, but it's still playing catch-up. And I think future policy needs to focus less on the type of family and more about how we support the quality of the relationship within families, uh, regardless of their type. Uh, Again, you'll probably be familiar with this, we've seen increases in the employment rates of all parents, fathers as well, um, but particularly uh, in relation to mothers, um, and increasing numbers of people working when their children are younger, under the age of five, and a particularly sharp rise you'll see there in the proportion of lone parents who are in work over this period. And I think here the implication is we've got high proportions, almost universal proportions of young children who are in some kind of formal childcare or setting, and the importance of the quality of that care, it's a really critical area of policy, and in particular for poorer children. The, the, the last aspect of the changing landscape I wanted to talk about was being in work but still poor. We see child poverty rates fluctuating over the period, going down uh, under the Labour government, uh, certainly the, the early part of that, and then fluctuating thereafter, and now on the rise as a result of the benefit and tax credit changes. Um, And what this table does is sort of sheds light on the changing drivers of child poverty and that shift for children who are from from unemployment and worklessness to in-work poverty. So now two-thirds of poor children are growing up in homes where a parent or adult is in work but still poor. And that raises critical questions about the changing labour market, the gig economy, self-employment, that these jobs are not sufficient to lift people out of poverty. And I think an important challenge as to what the role of the state should be in the context of that kind of economy. We also see that black and Asian and minority ethnic families are more likely to be in persistent poverty, and that's a reflection of lower-paid jobs and discrimination in the labour market. And that's despite the educational success of most children from black minority ethnic backgrounds, which has surpassed that of white children. So big issues to tackle in relation to racism and discrimination. So that's the sort of context in which the family policies that Naomi is going to talk about have been taking place. Just to talk about parenting and something rather, well, another way of looking at it. Um, so why these beautiful but two very different gardens? Um, Alison Gopnik is a well-known developmental psychologist, and she wrote a recent book called The Gardener and the Carpenter. And I think it's an interesting challenge to, to notions and narratives about parenting. And she argues that we've become too focused on parenting as a job, a bit like being a carpenter, trying to craft the perfect human being, and instead 
we should be thinking about, as a parent, describing a fundamental relationship between you and your child. More like a gardener where you create the conditions and the soil to enable your child to flourish and grow. Now, the gardening metaphor doesn't imply that parenting uh, doesn't involve hard work and dedication. But the way we thought about it, Naomi and I, and this is not just because we happen to have gardens that look, well, ours doesn't really look like, but tries to look like the one on the left, um, but is maybe more akin to an English country garden uh, than a French formal garden, which you see on the right, a parterre, which I didn't know it was called a parterre, uh, which is obviously highly, highly organised. It doesn't, I mean, in, in talking about this, we're not saying that support or classes or initiatives to support how you parent practice are not effective. But I think it's a useful corrective to some of the narrative about parenting, which can seem quite pressurising. So what do children need? It's a big question. Um, in the book, and we can only touch on it briefly here, um, we focus on a large body of evidence and research to look at what makes a difference, in particular to two aspects of children's lives, uh, their cognitive, so how they learn, reason, memory, and so on, and their social and emotional development. And we look at both of those two aspects of children's lives because they're most influenceable by uh, parents and they have long-term consequences for later outcomes. We also look at different aspects of family resources, so we look at income, we look at socioeconomic status, so questions of parental education, occupation and social class. And each of those matters for different outcomes in different ways. It's also important that there is a social gradient. So we, when we look at the relationship between family resources and children's outcomes, there's not a simple cut-off in relation to many outcomes, say health and education. And what we see is that if you cut the population into groups of five, the bottom fifth does worst, the second fifth does slightly better but worse than the third fifth and so on. And that has important implications for policy because it means that we can't just be thinking about the children at the bottom but we need to think about you know, it across the spectrum. We know that early childhood is a critical phase and that laying, it lays the building blocks for later development and we also see inequalities opening up very early from the age of two or three and uh, in many cases persisting and widening, but not for all groups. And while that early childhood is particularly important, it isn't a golden bullet. We don't subscribe to the view that it is all over by the age of five, but these other key milestones, risks and opportunities occur throughout children's lives. So my final slide before I hand over to Naomi. What are the things that make a difference? So the work that we looked at shows the importance of income. So work here done by Kitty Stewart, who is at the front somewhere, but I've lost her now, and Keris Cooper uh, at uh, the Centre for the Analysis of Social Exclusion. They looked at over 60 studies using randomised controlled trials and other robust studies. shows that household income has an independent impact on children's outcomes, to put it in their own words, money itself matters. 
And interestingly, the effect size from those studies is similar to that of the impact of schools or early education interventions. And poverty has that effect uh, directly by shaping what kinds of goods and services and experiences you can purchase for your children and yourselves, but also indirectly, and this is where the Early Intervention Foundation has done a lot of work, in looking at the relationship between economic stress, which then impacts on relationships in the family, both between the parent and the child, but also between the parents, and that in turn affects the outcomes of the children. We know parents are very important. We know that the home learning environment, so how you read, sing, play, the routines you have with your child, um, has, uh, uh, again, uh, a really uh, a strong influence on child outcomes. In fact, more in the study uh, that Cathy Silver ran than income and socioeconomic status. We also know that mothers in particular, but fathers too, uh, educational background and their mental health are particularly important in terms of how children fare. Relationships matter, not only between the parent and the child, but between the parents. So what I take from this is there's great potential to make a difference, both through policies to address income and parental education, or more, more directly through early intervention within families and educational settings. I'm going to hand over to Naomi, who's going to talk about how those have played out over the last two decades. I'm just slightly shorter than... But, I mean, I suppose the last thank you is to thank Carrie for agreeing to write the book with me, because it's a much better book. Because Carrie is much better on the facts, and I'm much more polemical. So, I, you know, so I, you know there's, there's a case that I want to argue. Um, so, what has government done? And I think the key question in that issue about the things that government does to um, reduce pressures and the things that government does, does to increase capabilities is for which of those do they have the easiest levers? You know, what can they do? What do they know how to do? What do we know works? And then for which of those do we think that how, how do they balance them? So if we look at, at labor, of course, which Carrie and I were very involved in, uh, the ones that I would really want to pull out as, as big tragedies in terms of loss from the labor government was Every Child Matters. And the reason that it was so easy to disband Every Child Matters within 24 hours of the 2010 election is that Every Child Matters was a policy that was like the plumbing. It was how you work together at local level, how you have responsibility at local level. It wasn't about direct services that you took away from people. It was the way you built the structures to create the conditions for working together for children. So there wasn't the kind of outcry about its being lost because it was good enough so that nobody knew it was there. And that's, you know, you only notice the plumbing when it doesn't work. You don't notice it when it does. I think it was a huge, a huge tragedy that we lost every, every child matters. And as Carrie already says, um, losing the child poverty targets, I think, was, was the thing that, that incensed me the most. The coalition was quite interesting in terms that it did a lot on um, flexibility and parental leave. It did the pupil premium. Um, troubled families, I have, I have you know, 
some difficulty with in terms of how you define a troubled family. And as Carrie said, families move in and out of risk and they move in and out of trouble. But at least money was going for these very, very disadvantaged families. But they also, you know, Graham Allen is here. He was key to setting up the Early Intervention Foundation. But interestingly enough, again, the Early Intervention Foundation, what, got $3 million? 2.5. 2.5. The Educational Endowment Fund got $125 million. So in terms of where they were putting their priorities, clearly it was on schools. It wasn't on wider child-to-child benefit. And, of course, austerity, and I'll say more about that in in a minute. Um, Conservatives, big expansion of child care, um, the 20 hours free, um, uh, setting up a work center for children's care, investment. Investment in camps, but again, I would say that they did service investments that were relatively small compared to what they were taking out of Social Security for families. So the families that, you know, so that the impact on children of the Social Security changes was absolutely enormous compared to what I would argue were quite paltry amounts of money that were going into particular services uh, like camps and relationship support. And even in the relationship support, you know, many of the organizations tell me, well, we're still waiting for it. So, so in terms of how it was distributed, there was an issue. So we would argue, and we argue in the book, that labor had a balance of reducing pressures and increasing capabilities, but in fairness, they also had a growing economy. They had lots and lots of room to spend money, and they spent money you know, on, on increasing benefits, but at the same time also a lot of service development. Um, the coalition basically put balancing the budget and reducing the deficit as number one. So the austerity policies, I mean, what really annoys me about the austerity policies is that the people who were protected was me. So I still get the winter fuel allowance. I still get my bus pass. And I think it's absolutely outrageous because I think that's money that should be spent on children and families. I don't think it should be spent on me. I, I honestly don't need it. And it really, the other thing that really annoys me about, see, I'm the polemical one, I'm the one who shouts, but the thing that really annoys me about the winter fuel allowance is that it appears in my bank account and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to stand in a queue, I don't have to fill in a form, it just gets there. And I think that's absolutely outrageous in terms of what poor people have to go through to get their money. So, um, so that focus on pensioners, I, I think, is... I just think it's misplaced. Um, What's really interesting is that in the 1997 Conservative Manifesto, um, John Major said that, you know, really, we don't want to be involved in family life at all. They were really worried about the nanny state. And somehow, they're no longer worried about the nanny state. I'm I'm not quite sure why, but somehow, none of the political parties are worried about the nanny state. They're very happy to tell parents what to do and how to do it. Um, whether it's the right thing to tell them to do and whether they enable them and create the conditions for them to do is a different question. But I think it's really interesting that, you know, a conservative um, Secretary of State for Education says if we're really serious about social mobility, we have to care about the home learning environment. Well, thanks very much. If I can't pay my electric bill, it's unlikely I'm going to read to my three-year-old every night. And I think it's that balance that's always the difficulty, is that the position is about the behaviors of the adults without the context in which adults are living. And as Carrie said, the kind of pressure that money, that money problem. I mean, I'm sure everybody in this room has had a fight at some point with their partner about money. 
And if you put that into context of how difficult it is when you're really short of money, I mean, my, my best story about short of money, doing the work in, in Scotland on poverty advice, I was with a group, Poverty and Truth Commission is where poor people get together with officials and, and talk about what's going on in their lives. So one of the women was worried about her electric bill um, uh, because she, she was worried about having to pay the electric bill. And she had two teenage sons, and she said... So she was worried about using the tumble dryer. So one myth absolutely dispelled is that poor people don't plan about money. I don't worry about using the tumble dryer. This woman had to worry about using the tumble dryer. So one of the other women in the group said, don't wash the clothes, use Febreze. Now, this isn't a problem that I've had, and I think it's really, really important to understand what it means to have those sorts of problems. She did say, I don't think so. But I think it's very interesting that that shared, that shared experience is, is really, really important. Um, so it's all very well to worry about the home learning environment. I think you're less likely to do the kinds of things that encourage a home learning environment when you're under increasing pressure on, on money. Um, the other thing that's been very big in policy development in the last few years is these different frameworks of analyzing family disadvantage. So when I was involved in the social exclusion force, we looked at money as well as housing, mother's mental health, employment, all, you know, a whole range of issues. And we did find that the chances of long-term social exclusion were much greater if you were unemployed and lived in poor housing, and one of the parents had a serious mental health problem. Now, we spent several hundred thousand of taxpayers' money to find out what I think was basically a, a, a truth, which is that, so what do you need to make things good? You need love and money. And they're both essential, neither is sufficient on its own, love and money. Love was about the relationships, and of course money is about ha having a job. Um, so, uh, but the adverse childhood experience is a retrospective look. It's a way of measuring child disadvantage based on what sorts of experiences parents had in their own childhood and how that influences adults' outcomes. And the Children's Commissioner, uh, via Leon Feinstein, have come up with another range of disadvantages. I think that what, I, what concerns me and what concerned us in the book on all these structures of, of disadvantage is that they rely on behavioral problems and not systems reform. They rely on if only parents would do the right thing, everything would be okay, without the notion about, well, what do you have to do to make sure that parents are enabled to do the right thing? Why is it easier for some than for others? And I always use the food one. Certainly in the work, I mean, I, I actually worked in nurseries. I was, the, I was the most senior civil servant who ever worked in a nursery. And one of the things that, you know, the women that I worked with knew what a healthy diet was, but they couldn't afford to say, well, try it. If you don't like it, we'll have something else. You know, that was too much stress. So that notion of understanding how people live and how the mix is of what we think makes good parenting and how, how, money, how money impacts on that is really important. So it's good to say that, you know, some policies actually do work, which, you know, um, there is consistent evidence on um, uh, uh, high-quality early education. There's consistent evidence that over the years, parents spend more time with their, with their children. Both uh, mothers and fathers spend more time. But in fact, the social class gradient has widened. So middle-class parents ha have increased more the time they spend with their children than poorer parents. 
but everybody is spending more time with their, their children. Um, as Carrie said, there's been incredible progress on um, most minority groups and school achievement, but that hasn't played itself out in terms of, cho- in terms of uh, jobs. So all those promises about if only, you know, we could get better at school, then we would, uh, uh, we would, uh, they would get the jobs. They're not getting the jobs. There's still incredible um, discrimination in, in the workforce. So there's a lot of tensions to be managed in, 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 in this story. And one of them is that understanding the problem is not solving it. I used to say to Tom Jeffrey, my boss in the department, was just one more PowerPoint, forget it. So what, what civil servants and ministers do is that they analyze and analyze and analyze, and then they come up with a policy, and then the, the minister will announce the policy, and, it, and then the civil servants will write the guidance on the policy, and tick, that's done, on to the next one. One of the problems with civil servants is that they're very smart, so they bore really easily. And they get really bored as soon as they've written the policy on to the next one. And, of course, implementation takes, takes, takes a long time. Um, I, I mean, one of the nice stories about how, how you do policy, Carrie and I were both involved in doing the 10-year strategy in 2004, which I think was one of the best pieces of work we ever did, which combined plans for children's centers and plans for um, uh, benefits changes and plans for improving the workforce in early years. But what was really fun about it is that there was tremendous competition between Gordon and Tony on whose policy it was. And if you're in charge of a policy as a civil servant that both the prime minister and the chancellor are fighting over, it couldn't be better because they keep writing bigger and bigger checks. It was an amazing time. I have to say, it was the best time of my life. But there's a great story associated with the competition. Some of you may have heard this story. On the morning of announcing, Gordon was going to announce it in the pre-budget report. On the morning of the event, and all the stakeholders were involved, were invited to number 11 to, to listen, to, to watch on close circuit TV. I had to tell number 11, rang, I said, have you organized lunch? Because I'm Jewish. I wanted to make sure everybody had some food for the event. You can't bring them at 11.30 and not give them something to eat. Anyway, they phoned me. At, number 11 phoned up my office on the morning and they couldn't get the TV to work. So I'm good, but I'm not that good. What are we going to do about the television? So it turned out it was the wrong aerial. And the right aerial was in number 11. And it was in number 10. That's right, it was in number 10. Carrie had to put it under her coat and walk down the corridor because none of the workmen in number 10 were willing to move the aerial into number 11. <laughs> so that's how crazy it was. It was, it was completely crazy. Um, other, uh, other tensions to be managed are top-down, bottom-up, national, UK, local, neighborhood. And again, I think this is a really interesting one because everybody believes in local democracy until it's their issue, and when it's their issue, it's tell the buggers what to do. And I'm exactly the same. I I do think that you should have local diversity except the issues that really matter to me. And I think that issue about how you sort out, you know, how you get away with the postcode lottery, but at the same time have some local discretion at local government level is really important. Um, Targeting or open access. Well, I think that's a different one. I think that targeting, you know, at the end of the day, we accept for the NHS that not everybody gets the same thing. 
We accept that we get NHS services based on need. So I don't think there's any problem about having a much more flexible system that says some people need some more stuff than others. It's about how you do it in a way that doesn't create artificial... As money gets tighter, the barriers go up so people who should have gotten the service don't get it. So how you target in a way that doesn't create stigma, but also make sure that you have appropriate levels so that people can get it. But I'm not, I'm not technically against, against targeting. But I do think that, the, that we have gone too much in favor of behavioral interventions and not enough in terms of system reform, which is a, another way to say that the things that we want to do to make parents do things differently have tended not to work that well. Some of them work, but they don't work as well as actually giving people money. Because I think there's a funny thing about, you know, if you're poor, getting money is, is is a good solution. I don't think you do it on its own. I think you do it with other things, but I think it is, it, it, it is, it is important. So um, where next? So I think government does have a role in reducing child poverty and growing capabilities. I think that we've never set out what key entitlement should be, what every family is entitled to and can expect from the state. And I think that we can learn a lot from a public health approach, which is about how you attune the services at local level to what's needed at, at local level. And that, that, you know, that families really are very flexible and change. There's a dynamic nation of, of family life. It's funny about, you know, I, I mean, I, I come from a blended family, and I have a really great story about my, my, uh, my, my, my current husband. His stepdaughter is a novelist. My ex-husband, she writes chiclet. My ex-husband bought her book, he said, out of family loyalty. I think that's so wonderful, that that distance of family. And he actually liked it, and it was chiclet. So that was, you know, so I think blended families can, can work, but it's very, very hard. hard it's very, very hard. Um, finding the right balance between service interventions, income transfers, and employment and, and labor market issues. We thought that, that employment was going to do the trick, but employment doesn't do the trick when it's a low-wage economy and people don't have enough hours. And the way, that, you know, the way that universal credit was supposed to work, I mean, those ideas behind it were really, I think the criticisms were right. We had too complex a system. We had a system where it was really difficult to figure out whether you were better off in work or out work. But the problem is that families are really complicated and dynamic, so fixing the system turned out to be much, much more difficult than than the people who designed universal credit thought thought it would be. Um, I mean, I want to end with the sort of creating a future as good for the next generation as was done for me. Um, And again, it's from my own family. Um, and it's about what what does a good childhood look like? I think we spend so much time talking about the challenge of parenthood. We forget about the joys of being a parent, and we really don't talk enough about the joys of being a child. We're always, you know, so does the three-year-old test mean that they're going to do better at at reading when they're eight? Does the eight-year-old test mean that they're going to get their GCSEs? And we forget about how important it is to be joyful in parenting and and in childhood. So um, when when the the G8 summit was in Scotland, um, my son was arrested. And I actually got a text. I got a text when I was in the Department of Education that said, arrested yesterday, out now behaving responsibly, which felt great. 
Um, so that weekend, he came home. And when he, was at, when he was at school, he had a friend who left school at 14 because he was bullied at school. And I was really proud of Nathan because he stayed friends with Dan. So it's the weekend. Nathan came back from Scotland. He was arrested. There was, and Dan came to visit. I hadn't seen Dan in about 10 years. It was great to see Dan. And Dan, you know, he left school at 14. He had a job. He had a family. He had two daughters. And I said, so, Dan, did you go to the uh, anti-capitalist demonstration at the G8 summit where my son was chained to a fence? And this boy who left school at 14 looked me in the eye and said, I'm much too poor to go to an anti-capitalist demonstration. (laughs) So I I, I do think that there are things that we can learn um, that that we can we can learn from our uh, from our children. And thank you very much. And there will be a drink afterwards. Thank you. Um, But but not yet on the drink. Um, so can I turn first to Ryan um, to react to both what we've just heard and to the book, which you've had a chance to look at. Great. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, and it's great to be on a panel with uh, Kerry and uh, Naomi, who are forces of nature in uh, family policy. Uh, and it's not just this great speaking panel, but I see a lot of people in the audience who have been very involved in family policy over many decades. Um, so... I'm expecting a grilling of uh, what I'm going to say, particularly from Naomi, but uh, (laughs) let's see what happens. So, I mean, first of all, I think the book is very forensic, it's comprehensive, it's careful, and it's uh, a balanced overview of what affects children's outcomes and family policy over the last 20 years. So many congratulations to you on that. Uh, And really, it's sort of bringing to the fore family policy, which hasn't been on the radar for the last few years, And I think in the book you slightly over-interpret why that might be. You talk about the sort of socially conservative DUP Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe the sensitivity that Theresa May has Mm -hmm. over motherhood. I I think, to be honest, it's probably more that Brexit is taking so much bandwidth. Uh, And also uh, I have a feeling that Theresa wanted to develop a kind of post-Cameron philosophy of conservatism, which was, you know, for Cameron it was very much about families and civic society, Mm. big society. Whereas I think for Theresa, it was much more of a status thing, which was the good that government Mm. can do, and showing the Conservatives uh, are very supportive of the state and have a different conceptualisation of it. So I think that was probably more to do with it. Um, And Cameron was big on family policy, and I was working, as John said, for the Tories in the late noughties, just on the eve of power. Um, And all the senior shadow cabinet uh, and the advisors were very enthusiastic about family policy. And, of course, I learned that all of them had just had young children. (laughs) So Cameron, Osborne, Steve Hilton, James O'Shaughnessy. uh, And so that was obviously colouring their approach. And the UNICEF report came out in 2007 saying the UK is the worst place to grow up in the developed world. uh, and they reacted very badly to that. Uh, and as a result of that, David Willits and I then did the big childhood review uh, and came out with some new policies there. And also, you know, it was a big priority, I think, for David Cameron because it was about showing a post-Thatcherite conservatism where, you know, there was a perception that conservatism had become associated with just letting individuals and businesses get on with it. Uh, and actually... He wanted to show a kind of more um, compassionate, communitarian conservatism, and family policy fitted into that. 
but also, you know, I think he really believed in it. I mean, he believed in marriage very strongly, uh, even expanding it to same-sex couples because he believed in that institution, the power of uh, institution. And he also believed, rightly or wrongly, that good parenting could trump poverty um, and that if we gave people the capabilities rather than fixating on income transfers, that could be a way of supporting families from deprived backgrounds. Of course, your book questions that and thinks it should be a joint approach. It should be a joint approach, but no doubt that was what Cameron was pushing. So I think it was a genuine uh, belief in family policy, but obviously different means to achieve what he would call progressive ends. I think the good in the book, really, is that money matters. Uh, And that's a real challenge to some on the right, both in an absolute sense, but also in a relative sense, which is, you know, to participate fully in society, you have to have a decent relative level of income. Uh, And I think, you know, a lot of Tories in the noughties in particular um, sort of got behind that, but then abandoned the child poverty target, which was the internationally recognised 60% median household income measure. Um, And, you know, there's lots of uh, sort of evidence that you put in the book about you know, how poverty almost trumps other disadvantages like ethnicity and gender uh, and that it's the sort of big one. Um, and you know, as I say, I think government dropped wrongly in my view uh, that material poverty indicator. But there are signs that it might come back and the Social Mobility Commission, which is this new cross-party uh, organisation, is designing almost what is identical to the 60% target, but there are some changes to it. So it looks like uh, we might get a new material poverty indicator back on a statutory footing, which I think is good and drives government policy as a result. What I also liked about the book is that it's not deterministic, and not deterministic in two ways. One, about the early years, this sort of infant determinism that's arisen sometimes in public debate, which is, if you don't get it right by the age of three, that's it, it's over. Uh, And of course, there's a lot of evidence now, particularly from the likes of Sarah Jane Blakemore, which suggests there are different critical windows uh, in adolescence uh, and early adulthood. So I thought that was good. But also the determinism that actually good parenting can overcome poverty to a certain extent, particularly the more authoritative parenting styles, which you mention uh, in the book. Um, And also that the vast majority of children in deprived circumstances, for example, are not presenting those sort of common antisocial behaviours like um, school exclusions and problems with the police. So I think the book rightly stresses a kind of holistic approach, that it's not all about money, but nor is it about everything other than money. Uh, And I think uh, you're good at recognising that, as well as, towards the end of the book, you talk about the limitations of the state. The state can't be the answer to everything. And we need a range of actors um, to to do so. Um, And I think it's a challenge to the right about the role of money, but it's also to the left, who I think sometimes some on the left can have a tendency to explain away poor outcomes entirely down to structural factors when I think it's got to be, it seems to be a combination of both structural and individual factors. There were some really interesting things in the book, which I didn't know as well, which I thought was really good, that Tony Blair, for example, was very keen on the educational side of formal childcare, whereas the Treasury and DWP were pushing more about female labour market participation. I also didn't know that the attainment gap between different socioeconomic groups narrows slightly between 14 and 16. I hadn't come across that evidence. I thought that was very interesting. And also, 
to a lot of regret of mine, really, which is that there's some evidence from the IFS recently that the impact of preschool education on long-term attainment is not as strong as we thought it would be in the UK, um, which was very interesting. Some slight criticism, if I may, um, and the first is, I suppose, the role of freedom in policymaking and outcomes. Uh, and I suppose the price of freedom in society is often inequality and unequal mm. outcomes. If people are left to do what they want and pursue the life they want, then they will earn differing amounts of money and you know, uh, pursue different courses in life. And that's not always, those unequal outcomes are not always burning injustices mm-hmm. or acts of discrimination. Sometimes they are, but in some, some circumstances it's because people have taken different paths in life. Um, and I think interestingly um, the beverage quote that you mentioned uh, which struck me was quite horrific but of course you have to put it in context which is mothers uh, had he quotes a vital work to do in ensuring the adequate continuance of the British race uh, which you know I mean beverage is sort of often held as the great progressive but uh, I'm not sure people would uh, agree that the only role that women can play is uh, to do that Uh, And it upsets us in the liberal tradition, I think, uh, when we see uh, a kind of social engineering that you yourself shouldn't determine the life that you want, shouldn't be the author of your own life story, but there's social engineering going on. And it shows the sort of importance of agency. And, you know, what I found in the book, the left has quite rightly been critical of attempts to try and force people to stay married and have have a certain family formation. Uh, and, you know, criticised incentives to try and keep people married, which, you know, I, I th- you know, the right has to accept that there are boundaries to market incentives. And, you know, love, which is the highest of human activities, you know, that should be something which is a preserve and we don't get market forces involved in. But I think the challenge for the left, and it comes slightly through your book, is, you know, there's a sort of uh, feeling that, you know, we need to push more to earn a families, for example, Um, because the evidence suggests they're less likely to live in poverty. But, of course, we should give people the choice, which is if some people want to stay at home and have one-earner couples, that should be something, if that's what they want to do, and that's the choice, that policy should enable as well. Um, And really, policy should be there to maximise the choices people have rather than force them in one particular way. So I thought the book, for example, was... It didn't really talk about how you might support one-earner couples uh, and was slightly dismissive of the transferable tax allowance, for example, which is often uh, framed in the way that it incentivizes marriage, but it's also support for one-earner couples as well. Um, I think, secondly, um, I think you're slightly unfair to the Conservatives on the policy decisions around family policy almost as if it's all really just an excuse to cut spending. And, of course, there was a need to cut spending at the time because um, you know, both an economic necessity but also, I, I think, a moral necessity to cut it. Um, but, you know, for example, the nudge unit, you, you sort of say the whole behavioural politics was kind of politically helpful at a time of very constrained resources. I think that's a bit unfair to the behavioural policy unit, which is, you know, there's some good evidence that it can... Uh, improve outcomes and and also that the big society was short-lived and again as a sort of cut uh, was a sort of uh, cover for cuts 
But actually, you know, the government was quite keen on that sort of civic space. The NCS, for example, that continued to uh, attract investment, social investment bonds, tax breaks for social investment. So there was a genuine enthusiasm around that. In terms of Anyway, I'm nitpicking here. It's a brilliant book overall, but that's, that was me just being um, sort of uh, in the weeds, as it were. Where now, just very quickly, because I'm conscious of time, I think if I was sort of devising where next to go on family policy, I'd say let's try and invest in both um, financial capital, human capital, and social capital. That, that should be the way that we frame how we deal with family policy. So financial capital, much more money into universal credit, into the work allowances, for example. But also, as you say in the book, maternity uh, pay, statutory maternity pay, is woefully inadequate. And there's lots of evidence that people, women in particular, are returning to more work, low-income women, much sooner than they would like. So, you know, a policy for work incentives around second earners, but also a policy to help people who want to stay at home for a bit longer as well. Uh, around human capital, you quite rightly say in the book, a lot of the focus is about improving the quantity of child care hours, and maybe we need to focus a little bit more on quality and improving staff qualifications in particular. And I think, uh, you know, any new state funding should be targeted towards that. And thirdly, on social capital, which, you know, a lot of Tories are very concerned about, you know, the kind of relationships that uh, people have. And there's lots of evidence now that people with strong and diverse social networks are less likely to live in poverty, Nissa Finney's work, the academic, but also more likely to experience social mobility. There's some good US evidence on that. So how can we design institutions to get more mixedness? Of course, public policy can't force people to become friends. That would be horrifically authoritarian. But uh, we can design institutions like children's centres, uh, like schools, where we can have admissions policies which enable people from different backgrounds to get more mixedness, uh, not only with people who can become friends like them, but people from different backgrounds as well. But, yes, a brilliant book, and well done. Thank you. Matthew. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to repeat uh, all the compliments you've already received. Um, oh, please. Uh, it's powerful, it's cogent, it's pretty comprehensive, and I mean, it's a, it'll be a, a, a text which will be seen, I think, as vital in this era for many years to come. I mean, I think if you had to summarise the book in one paragraph, you'd say that uh, the Labour government that was quite rich, was pretty committed to this agenda, spent a lot of money and made a lot of progress, but also made some mistakes. The Conservatives, which was a government that had a lot less money, it was a lot less committed, cut spending and made things worse despite getting <laughs> some things right. I mean, that's basically what happened. And uh, uh, um, if I've got my small gripes, they're much less elaborate than, than the uh, than Ryan's, but I. Poor old children's trust fund. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I can't believe you forgot the no, children's trust fund. So, you know, it was short lived and. But it will come back, in my view. Uh, so, that, and the other thing, which might seem a bit folksy, but I, I, I have my third child born 15 years later than my second, and I'd say the really big difference for their mother was the online support that mothers now get in comparison to the online support they got. 15, you know, so actually now, if you're a young mother, you get like you know, kind of weekly update of how your kids should be and you know what their development should be and what's happening and if things go wrong, you know, it's all you'll be reassured and there's mums up. So I think actually, 
you know, maybe, you know, as policy makers, we don't, you know, talk about these ephemeral things, but actually I think the experience of being a mother now has been really changed by the online resources that are available to you in terms of advice and support and networks and things like that. Anyway, those are tiny things. Um, so, I mean, you, you know, your policy wants you to, so uh, your, your kind of view of the world is uh, that, that policy is what matters and then politics gets in the way. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of slightly different, really, in my background. So I kind of like am more interested in politics, and I find that you know the constraints of policy rigor get in the way. So, um, I kind of what, what I wanted, what I wanted to just focus on was if I could go back to the kind of early years of Labour's administration, knowing kind of what we know now, what would I do differently in terms of the political project? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not going to get into the policy detail, but in terms of the political project. Uh, and I think, and, and I also will end up by saying that, by connecting this to, to where we go next. So I think the first thing I'd say, which I feel very strongly, which actually I felt pretty soon after the child poverty target had been established, was that we made a huge mistake in not engaging the public much more mm-hmm. in the setting of that target. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we should have had a kind of year-long debate. I think we should have said, look, we have this amazing aspiration, but it's going to take a generation or two even to achieve, or a generation to achieve. It won't be achieved just by the state. It'll involve civil society and families themselves. It's going to be difficult. We'll make some mistakes along the way. And I think had we spent that year, and then at the end of that year said, yes, we've had this massive debate, and actually the public are up for it, and the public had owned the target, it would not be nearly so easy to get rid of it. So I think that was uh, one thing that I would do differently and, and um, uh, I think we've just made the same mistake by the way around climate change which is I think you know, when as a nation you make a really big commitment it's got to, you've got to do the work of trying to feel that it's owned by the public or else it's very easy uh, for people not to feel empowered and turn against it and for people who are cynical to, 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 to exploit that lack of, kind of ownership. A second point, which I'm not going to labour because it's been made, in the, it's made well in the book and, and Ryan's made it as well, which is I, I do think that the over-enthusiasm the, uh, over that, that was associated around the kind of early years, the kind of deterministic, almost medical model, mm-hmm. was, you know, was over the top. I think it happened as a consequence of um, over-exuberance about science on the one hand, and also that politically it is easier to argue for resources for very little babies because they've not done anything wrong. You know? <laughs> Whereas teenagers are kind of snotty and difficult yeah. and arsy. And, you know, uh, so I think that, as you say in the book, that that, that was uh, led to an overemphasis, a, a view that was too deterministic. It was uh, overemphasis on kind of individual factors and family factors, underemphasis on ongoing social determinants, underemphasis, as Ryan said, and as you say, on childhood as a whole and especially the teenage uh, years so I think I would when all that kind of came along I would have been interested in it but possibly not gone quite so over the top uh, as everyone seemed to for a few years thirdly uh, I'd say that the emphasis on income poverty and and this is nuanced but um, it it, it did mean that there was less attention to the overall social gradient which is a point Mm -hmm. that you make and I think that's one of the things I got out of the book that I hadn't really thought about enough before was that it's not just about the bottom 10% or 20% but it's about differences that go right up the social uh, gradient Um, but also that emphasis meant that there wasn't as much focus on on other sources and other forms of disadvantage and suffering Mm -hmm. Um, on assets I've mentioned the Children's Trust Fund you know 
uh, work. Um, and the massive differences now in if you are uh, if you have a good employer and you have the full bundle, actually, I think it, life is a lot better for parents. But if you're you know if you're a casual worker, a zero hours worker, then you know life feels very and there's a huge difference actually. I mean, good employers are much much better than good employers were 20 years ago. Um, but if you don't have a good employer, then then things are much tougher. And I think places, you know, some places are great to grow up in and some places are pretty grim to grow up in and you know that's not something I think that's something we're starting to talk about a lot more now but we didn't really emphasize because we were looking about income poverty and that and, and that, that takes you away very often from the, the nuance of kind of plates and the final thing I'd say is that and, and these points kind of roll into each other uh, as I think back as, as to how I would have wanted to slightly change the narrative change the nature of the political project is that in a way what we were saying, I think, in the labour years was that making things right for poorer families was the route to a successful society. And if you could get that right, in a sense, that was that you were a successful society. And I think the different way to think about it would be to say, actually, the good society is, is, is a society in which children and families thrive. And that's a subtle difference, but it's saying, not, you know, this is society, and it's fine, but we've got this issue about children in poverty and about pensioners as well and we'll correct those things everything's fine but there's a different and richer conversation which is to say well the good society as a whole is one in which children and families thrive and I think that leads you into into kind of more radical in some, in some ways kind of slightly more humanistic ways of talking about these issues rather than merely just about kind of statistics and, and, and uh, coefficients and uh, uh, and and I'll, I'll conclude with this point, which is that of all the things that we should be worried about at the moment, and there are a few, um, I was talking to one of our leading pollsters the other night, and I'm not sure the evidence is, whether it's yet been published, but, but they're about to publish evidence which shows that levels of social pessimism are now higher than they've ever been before. So we're now in a position where kind of almost four out of five people think that life will be worse for their kids than it has been for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really worrying because it has a self-fulfilling element to it, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, in some ways we can look at all of this agenda and we can say at some, in some deep way it's failed if people are so pessimistic about their children's prospects and their grandchildren's prospects. Um, and I think if we're going to turn that round, uh, if we're going to... Uh, ever have a, a time when people believe once again that life will be better for their children what that will lead to I think is a, is a more an even more a profound rethinking of what we understand by individual and social flourishing and I think that by the way the climate emergency is also part of that need for a deeper conversation about what we mean by individual and social flourishing and I think that we didn't have that richness of conversation then. Maybe it was impossible, maybe it would have felt too abstract, but I think it's important now. Thank you all very much. I don't know whether there's anything you want to come back on immediately um, or hold that to the yeah, end. I think it's better. So I think give everybody who's been um, patiently yeah. listening a chance to um, contribute. Um, could I um, remind you of the general ground, ground rules? I'll probably take, I think, two or three of you together. Um, could you say who you are, if it's relevant, say, in, in some sense, where you're from? And then could you ask a question um, rather than make a particularly long um, statement? 
Um, that would be helpful for the other people who are trying to bring in. So, first of all, we have a lady in, in the front. Are there microphones coming around? A microphone just at the front? Yeah, please. Is that on? Just behind you. or four points in both of those um, contributions. Let's take those. Are there any particular things you'd like to react to and then I'll come across? Uh, so, uh, Jan, uh, in relation to what you were saying, I think um, that's right. The critique of, of sort of early childhood determinism is, is, is not new. Um, uh, it's important to say, just with my old early intervention foundation hat on, that the early intervention foundation was not focused on 
uh, just the early years. It was about how you intervene early enough in order to make a difference when uh, a, a, a problem emerges, although it, it has done quite a lot of work on the early years. Um, I, I, I support the ban on smacking um, uh, in Scotland. Um, uh, it, it is it is intrusive, but I think, um, I mean, I have no idea what Naomi thinks, so we haven't discussed it. Uh, I think it's quite difficult, but I think it's sort of, it's, it's pointing the way that actually we need to find other ways of managing and coping with difficult situations at home, and that smacking is not, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not desirable. So um, uh, that, that would be my view. Susanna, in relation to the, the things you raise, I mean, I think actually... What it po we do talk quite a lot about housing and the interaction between housing and poverty and particular issues in relation to the increase in pr the private rented sector and levels of insecurity for families with children. Um, but I think what it points to is that actually we need a multifaceted approach. And um, so in terms of literature and language, the Nucker Foundation, where I'm currently working, has done quite a lot of really interesting interventions that support children's language development in the early eight, uh, years in particular, um, uh, debt management. I mean, we need to think about all of those things together if we're going to make a difference to your godchildren, but also uh, to, to, to a wider group. Um, I'm afraid I also support the ban on smacking. Um, I suppose another thing I, I want to say, which is quite difficult, which is about the whole social mobility story, which is part of Suzanne's story about um, all her godchildren, at the end of the day, there has to be space in society for everyone, and we need, you know, among the lowest paid workers are childcare workers. Um, the number of childcare workers who are on universal credit, I think, is it. So we need to, if the steps weren't so steep, the difference between moving from one to the other would be less critical. So I actually think the social mobility project is the wrong project. So that, that, that's the best I can do. And you'd like to... Can I take more questions? Yeah. I mean, I agree about social mobility. Oh, good. Okay. Um, yes, please, in the front row, and then a gentleman with glasses over there, and then there's a, a lady also with glasses. So we'll take those three. Hi, I'm Maya. I'm Carrie's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a journalist. But um, I wanted to ask a question about um, domestic abuse and... Um, family policy. So I don't know if you've seen, but recently there were about 120 MPs who called for there to be an inquiry into kind of the safety and treatment of domestic abuse victims by the family courts. So there have been lots of cases where um, domestic abusers, people that have got, you know, hefty convictions for violence, who have been given custody of the children. In some cases, even the children have died. Mm. And um, so... I guess you could say that this presumption in the law, which I do agree with, that you know both that the child needs to have access to both parents, can sometimes lead to you know someone's track record of history just being wiped clean. So, I'd like to put that into context and add some figures. I think in 70% of um, cases in the family court, domestic violence is or abuse is kind of. A, is at present in 70% of cases in the family court, but then there's only 1% of cases where, um, you know, a child custody application will be refused. So I just wondered what you thought, because it is a tricky area. Should, you know, people with a history of violence have access to children? And one last thing, I think because of the um, 
court, like journalists can't, res- can't report on the family courts um, legally, and also any parent that has um, a case in the family courts, they can't even go and speak to anyone about it. It's totally confidential. So do you think that there's maybe an issue where people don't know what's happening in the family courts? Thank you. And then um, right at the back on the, on the left there. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's Jabir Buck from the Race Equality Foundation. Um, unfortunately, I've been involved in this for a very long time, and, and I can't help but raise an issue. Uh, and perhaps I'm misquoting Michael Rutter, but I do recall him saying, for, for good parenting to thrive, it needs a good environment. And he said that a very, very long time ago. So one of the things that troubles me is what happens to evidence-based policy and how we develop evidence-based policy. Because I think what we've seen constantly is that we keep trying to reinvent the evidence or reanalyze the evidence and then end up making mistakes as a result of that. So when Every Child Matters is published, uh, there are, I think, in the 70-odd pages, two references to parents in there. And you sit, sit back and think, well, how can that have happened? And I do wonder whether what sometimes ends up happening is in, in that development we get into groupthink rather than actually challenging what it is that we accept as being, being uh, uh, right. We, we, we just carry on with it. So we now find ourselves in the situation where somebody from the Education Endowment Fund is saying that 75% of the things that they've funded don't work. Well, how can it be after eight years of millions and millions of pounds of investment in, 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 in interventions that we're now saying it doesn't work? Well, perhaps it's actually that we haven't really challenged our, ourselves. We've not really paid attention to that evidence. And I do wonder whether it's policy development that's, at, that pro, uh, that's really at fault here. Okay. If you pass it behind you. Thank you. Um, my name is Abby Day. I'm a professor of sociology of religion at Goldsmiths, University of London. Uh, just drawing the question back to austerity, please, um, and the notion of the big society. David Cameron had been, at the time, particularly enamored with the uh, report and, and ideas of the big society. I think were originally proposed by Philip Blond, who was a former theology lecturer. And Cameron and his government gave quite a lot of money, well, millions, to the Church of England, and there was a promise, an idea, somehow, that the Church of England would be the institution that would step in to try to fill some gaps. And I'm wondering if there was anything in the report that would give us some insight into what the role of the Church of England may have been or not, or any other roles of faith-based religious organizations in influencing, for better or for worse, I suppose, child poverty. Um, thank you very much. I think that gives quite a lot to chew on. Um, so, would like to go? Oh, well, I'll start with the easy one first, which is the domestic violence one. <laughs> if that's the easy one. Um, I think, I mean, actually, my son's doing a lot of work on domestic violence. I, I raised a radical feminist, which I'm very proud of this. But the work that he's doing is on prevention with boys, and how do you combat locker room culture? How do you, you know, there's the certain cultures that make the way you women. And I think that we need a lot more work on that. I think that by the time you get to the stage that you're discussing, it, it's way too late. I think those judgments, I mean, the evidence is, yes, contact with both parents is better for the child. So the judgments on which 
parent is going to be dangerous or not is a very, very difficult judgment. I have huge sympathy for the social workers who have to make those judgments and sometimes get it wrong. But I think we need to do a lot more and think much more about in schools, in sports clubs, in football, in, you know, where boys are, what are we doing that, that is, is much more preventative, isn't just about intervening once it's happened. I mean, there is astonishing evidence about the level of domestic violence among police against their own partners. So I, I just think those issues really need to be addressed. Um, on the other two, um, Javier, I, I, I didn't quite understand the question in the sense that I think you're right that we revisit policy and revisit policy and revisit policy and sometimes get it wrong, but I'm not sure that balance between direct work with the child, direct work with parents, and how do you create the conditions for what Matthew described about families and children. And I think we haven't thought enough about that. I think we've kept thinking that the next tweak in the policy is going to do it, and it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we've thought broadly enough, enough about it. Abby, again, the answer to your question, I honestly don't know. And uh, I honestly don't know what role, you know, I mean, faith groups, it seems to me that faith groups have done make a huge contribution at the other end of the age spectrum. And I tell all my friends as they get old, for heaven's sakes, join the church or the synagogue or whatever, because that's where you get support. And that's, But I'm not sure that that support is, is the same in terms of children. I, I think it's quite different. I think that it works much better at the other end of the age spectrum. But that's just a personal view, so I don't know. Uh, well, um, the, the only thing I'd say is that I... I think there's a general problem around the way we do national policy uh, and the nature of the world. Um, uh, and so I think that there are two non-trivial problems with policy as we think of it. One is that it tends to intervene in complex systems by trying to affect one or two variables yeah. within those yeah. systems mm -hmm. and it's almost impossible to predict the ways in which these variables are going to react against each other. And that sometimes leads to counterproductive outcomes and sometimes it leads to outcomes which become very quickly kind of dissipated and <laughs> lost. And secondly, path dependency, um, in the sense that you can embark on something and it's very difficult to kind of adapt it as you, as you, as you go along or it doesn't work initially and then politicians lose faith and then the evidence comes in and it was starting to work. And so there's kind of different forms of that. Um, so <clears throat> the only time I, on my one mention the RSA before I leave the room, but... At the RSA, we, we, we advocate an approach to change which, is, uh, which we describe as thinking like a system and acting like an entrepreneur. And um, I, I, one of the reasons I support devolving power is that I think it's extremely hard if you think that trying to work systemically but also trying to be highly kind of agile and adaptive and experimental in how you do things, if you think that's the right way of doing things, and I think that's in a way some, quite, some ways quite obvious. The problem is our institutions are just not set mm -hmm. up to work mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I th it's almost impossible to see how national government in a country that is, of this side could ever mm -hmm. ever work like that. I think you start to see different ways of working in Scotland and Wales because they're smaller than, than mm -hmm. and at local government level. But I think national policy, you know, national policy is you know we need national policy in areas like defence and, and tax and things like that. But I think in a lot of areas it just cannot work in a way that that, that, that fits the, wor the world. I'm in a slight defence of public policy, which is I think sometimes we can beat ourselves up and say there's no progress being made, but actually on a lot of indicators, 
there are. And I suppose that's a challenge to the right, who often think, you know, the world has become much more atomised and sexualised and people aren't focused on family as much. You know, we should go back to the 1950s and that sort of nuclear family setup. But, you know, the evidence suggests that parents, as you say, are spending more time with their children, even though they're working. Yeah. The time news surveys bring that up. Uh, and yes, there are different types of family formation, but people, you know, when you ask them what matters to you most, it's family which mm-hmm. comes. Mm-hmm. So there hasn't been an abandonment of families, just mm-hmm. obviously the modern world has moved on slightly. And then I suppose there's a challenge to the left, which sometimes can be quite doom and gloom about the state of the world. And there are problems, you're right, uh, in work poverty is rising, for mm-hmm. example. But, you know, uh, and there are problems around domestic abuse and things like that. But, you know, Maltreatment of children has come down considerably over the decades. Um, there's less domestic violence recorded. Uh, on most indicators, we're going uh, the right way. Uh, and you look at the attainment gap, for example, that is still narrowing. More people are going to higher education. More people are in employment. There's a bit in your book, actually, where you talk about millennials. And I, I'm a millennial. Actually, millennials are approaching 40 now. I mean, it's quite a scary thought, isn't it? Um, but... You know, there's a there's a bit in the book where you talk about you know it's they sort of came into the labour market in the wake of the financial crisis. Housing is uh, really unaffordable. Wages are stagnating, and comparison to previous generations are not as good. And I agree with that. There are problems, but also this is uh, a generation which has record levels of education attainment, much higher levels of education attainment before, much more entrepreneurial activity, much more. Um, uh, improved employment outcomes. So um, that's not to take away from the problems that we face, but actually through a combination of things, including good public policy from Labour, from Conservative, from Lib Dems, there has been progress. More to do, but you know, I think that isn't acknowledged enough sometimes. Uh, just a final word. A final word, really just to pick up Ryan's last point, that I think that you know, there, while uh, but, you know, you look over the last 20 years and, you know, sharp changes both in the economy and spending and austerity, you do see continuities and you do see some things like statutory minimum wage, uh, work family, uh, uh, you know, policy. There are areas where um, they have become part of um, how we do things, including the early years. And so there's something about holding on to the things that um, uh, where, where there have been changes and, and how, we, how we grow those. But I, do, I also do agree with, with both of... I mean, I thought they were very, very perceptive and thoughtful comments from you both, which is about standing back and thinking, thinking more broadly about, about change. And, and I think Naomi and I would agree that what we've put in our last chapter, in a sense, is a, it's a first go at thinking about some of the dilemmas in policy. But, you know, that is going to evolve and change, and we'd really like to to be part of whatever future conversation there is about the role, role of family policy in order for children and families to flourish. Right, I just want to pick up Matthew's point about the participation on the poverty very targets very quickly. So I would say that the thing that I was most proud of about Sure Start is that the punters loved it. David Cameron's mother was on the picket line trying to save her local children's centre. And the fact that we set up a public service that 
people actually wanted and fought for was an astonishing success. And I think what we have to learn from that is how do we get to understand more that balance between what we think people should want and what they actually want and how we have that debate, as Matthew says, at local level. And I think that we're just not very good at that. We're so clear that we're, we're so sure we know what's good for everybody that we don't actually try to talk to them about what they think is good for them and their family. Yeah. Okay, that's great to have a reminder that there are other parents of prime ministers that disagree with uh, their their children today. Um, Can I just end this, first of all, by um, big thanks to Lisa Ryan and the team in the Inequalities Institute and to the LSE events team for this evening. And then particularly to all our speakers, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for the effort you've put into this. Um, On behalf of of the Institute, we're thrilled to be Um, associated with it. And to all of you, please do. You can now follow up the slide. Uh, Do come and join us um, at the Garrick, just a few yards down the road.